Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today we're catching up with Cub member Rich Harvey. Rich is the founder and CEO of propertybuyer.com.au. Property Buyer is Australia's most awarded and trusted buyers agency, helping home buyers, property investors, commercial buyers, and developers find the ideal property. Rich himself is a buyers advocate, economist, property investor, CEO, and founder. And he is, let me tell you, an absolute legend and a very smart guy. I learned an absolute bomb from this episode. We discussed the current property market and what it may look like in the future. When is a good time to buy? And Rich shared his personal story of building a great empire, losing it all, and then rebuilding it again, and the lessons he's learned along the way. He's a truly fantastic guy, as I said. Hope you enjoy the show. How do you like our new uh, studio with uh, hand-fitted uh, by very capable uh, hands of Daniel and Laura, hand-fitted sound – what do you call these things? Soundproof Acoustic tiles. panels. Acoustic panels. Hey, that's, hey, you're not just here for a pretty face. <laughs> not just a pretty face. <laughs> not good just good head for face. radio, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How good is it? It's it great. makes us feel professional. Absolutely. It looks, they're not only looks professional, sounds professional. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got both, both looks and sound exactly. covered. But um, no, I'm excited right. to have you here because you're one of those – very special, rare people who are true uh, experts in their industry uh, and in their field. You're not just a property um, expert, I guess, but you're also an economist, which, uh, uh, as I, I know and also can imagine, definitely goes hand in hand with uh, what you do as, as one of our country's leading uh, buyers advocates or owners of uh, buyers advocacy. Um um, so, yeah, I'm very excited to have you. Great to be on the show, Daniel. Really appreciate it. And well, I've got a few questions to, to start off with um, because – and why don't we just jump straight yeah, into it, actually. It. Ask, ask away. But before we get to your story in the business, I mean, there's a lot of people out there thinking, wow, what's going on with the property market right now? What's going to happen? Is there a recession coming? The cash rate's going up. Um, um, but on the flip side to that – our country is still empty. We need more people and there's probably not enough houses as it is. We've got limited geographical space. Like there's, there's two conflicting arguments going on and, and I'm sure a lot of people would be keen to hear your opinion, your honest opinion on the, um, on, on the state of the property market and how you think people should be um, considering their purchase. You've asked about 10 questions yeah, in one, but I that's all good. That no, but let me, <laughs> let me hit you up with a couple of straightforward answers. I think first and foremost, don't panic. A lot of people in the property market, when they see interest rates going up or see negative media headlines, they just panic and they freak out and they go, oh, quick, I've got to sell or I've got to buy or I've got to do something quickly. And I think property is a long game. That's the thing I've learned right through the whole um, career process that I've been in the game. Property is a long game. Don't panic sell. So many people, I remember when COVID hit in 2020, we had a number of clients that went, Rich, the market's going to crash 30% like CBA is saying. And I said, don't panic. I said, just hold hold steady, buy well. All those clients that stayed with us and bought really well did incredibly well. Those that didn't buy literally got priced out of the market. So look, to answer your question a couple of ways, 
we've got rising interest rates. But just because we've got rising interest rates, it doesn't mean it's the end of the world and we're going to have a recession in Australia. I think we won't have a recession in Australia. We might have one quarter of maybe backward growth if they ratchet up rates too fast, but we're just normalising interest rates. I personally think we're going to see the cash rate top out at around 23 to 2.75%. And where is it now? It's at 1.85, right? We've just had emergency levels from 0.1%, which is virtually a 0% cash rate. We've just got the Reserve Bank was actually a bit too slow to pull the trigger. And what they shouldn't have done, they shouldn't have said there'll be no rate rises till 2024. Well, what's everyone done? Everyone's loaded up with debt, you know, gone a bit too hard, and now they've got to unwind that, you know. So they've created too much momentum in the economy. They've got to pull it back. They've got to contain the inflation beast, which is going to be contained anyway as supply chains get back into water. So that's going to happen. Um, but the big thing I'll say with going long in property, a couple of reasons why. You've got migration that really needs to ramp up. The target's 160,000 people. We really should be at 250,000 per annum because we have a massive shortage of workers in this country. So because we've got... Um, such a shortfall in property also. Like probably five, six years ago when I used to do a lot of seminars, I always put up a chart from ANZ Bank which showed the imbalance in the property market between supply, what's actually needed, and demand. And there was always a big gap. But the last five years, we've actually got back to a more equilibrium market. We've actually developed enough, generally enough property that the next 10 years we're heading into a phase of undersupply of property yet again, particularly in our capital cities. You know, a lot of the apartment overhang has now been absorbed um, we've had a lot of Chinese migrants come through. That tap's a bit turned off now. But generally, migration is going to be one of the major factors to drive the property market. Cheap money's been obviously driving it. Um, but, you know, just natural population increase and migration increase is going to see the property market stabilise. So in summary? So in summary, look, don't panic, as I say. Um, look, it's a great time to buy now. If you're answering, is it a good time to buy? Buy when there's peak panic, which is right now. If you look at the consumer sentiment curve, we're down to about the index of 80. So the Westpac Institute index is down to about 80, which is the same period of, of depression as we had during when COVID hit and in the GFC. So these are the times when you can buy exceptionally well. And, and I've, you can ask me later, but I've just bought two properties in the last three months. And for those people who don't know what the index means, what does it actually mean? It measures people's propensity to spend and, and their feelings about where the economy is going. So consumer sentiment measures how people feel about their wealth and about the economy. So there's also a producer index as well, but this is more about consumers because that what consumers think dictates what they do with their wallets and whether they're willing to open up and spend or whether they keep it shut and just do nothing. And so you're saying that makes it a good time to purchase because if someone puts a property up for sale, there's going to be a lot less people bidding on that property and therefore you get a better price? Absolutely. Can I tell you, this time last year when I was going to do auctions for people, attending auctions on behalf of people, I was up about against 10 to 15 bidders. It was crazy. Um, right now, hardly any properties are going to auction. Deals are done getting done pre-auction. There might be one or two bidders if you're lucky. I mean, high-quality properties are still selling well, um, but generally the markets come off around 10 to 12%. Very different to what the headline figures are. CoreLogic will say Sydney property prices are down 4.7. Melbourne prices are down 2.8. That's rubbish. They're about three months out of date. In actual fact, I can go out and buy a property for you tomorrow, Daniel, at around, you know, as I say, 8 to 12% discount to what you'll see a price advertised for. So a really good time. Vendors are much more negotiable. There is less stock until we hit the spring season. Um, but if you're looking to buy, next three months, ideal time to get in. Amazing. Well, we'll leave that part there. We'll, so we're going to circle back to that further in, in the episode. But, but because there is actually no stock, I want to go on a complaint about that. Uh, because I'm searching for a house in the east and there's just <laughs> no houses. You, you can go and you literally type. Rose Bay, Double Bay, Bellevue Hill, every single, maybe North Bondi, every single day, 
for the weeks and weeks and weeks, and there's maybe two houses. Well, that's because it's the up. eastern suburbs. You should know that. It's super tightly held. Eastern suburbs is the premier market of Australia, always tightly held, and those suburbs you've mentioned have some of the highest median prices. I mean, Bellevue Hill, 6.3% median house price, you know, fantastic place to buy and invest and live, wonderful area, but very tightly held. And as you probably know, majority of properties, probably over 50 to 80% will be sold off market. So you're not going to see much advertised on the main portal. So again, you know, there's a very, very tightly held, also a long holding period. If you look at the average hold period for a property, um, it's around about eight to ten years. But in Bellevue Hill and all the eastern suburbs, I'd suggest it's probably going to be fifteen to twenty years plus. Okay. So how did you get this smart? How did you start your <laughs> How did you start your career? Where, where are you from? Are you a Sydney boy? Or yeah, born what? in Sydney. I just eat Weetbix for breakfast. So yeah. that's why. No. <laughs> that is the, I mean, that is the best way for all Australian kids yeah, to, to, absolutely. to to grow up. There's an ad for Weetbix. No, but uh, I guess look. I mean, I've just been blessed with a great family. Grew up in Sydney. Uh, went to school. At, went to a public high school, Clara High. Um, went to university. Did a basic economics degree. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I first started. You know, uni. I thought, but Dad said, Rich, get a good education. Get a a good job and then you'll be set for life, you know. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, okay, but I really, I love being practical, love working with my hands. And I thought I was going to be a carpenter, actually. You know, I've always had a love of woodwork and doing practical stuff and I still make furniture. So when I got married, my wife, we didn't have much money. I ended up making all my furniture for the house. But, no um, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just saved with money. With what? But, yeah, just, just bought stuff, built beds and bedside tables and dining tables and that sort of thing. With but, like uh, saws. Yeah, and... yeah, bought all the stuff. Um, but yeah, look, I did economics and I always had a real interest in, interest in the environment. And um, really, I was a bit of a greenie at heart. So I did a lot of environmental courses and I, you know, did um, a lot of economic development, had a real sort of heart for particularly the, the Asian economies that were really struggling, almost got a job with World Vision at one stage. Um, and I thought I was sort of going to sort of go down that sort of green economist route and actually ended up doing that, ended up working um, after I graduated in sort of environmental economics, got a job with the Forestry Commission as their senior economist and then moved on from that to work for the Environment Protection Authority as their principal economist. So, yeah, I've just had an interest in the economy and money, how things work, how the world works, and um, and then gradually developed an interest in property. Yeah, so so that, that was my next question. So, I mean, it's kind of an I mean, it might not be, but it's kind of an obvious jump from uh, economics to to property. Mm. Um, why did you make that jump? What what triggered that interest? Uh, good question. I think for me, I got married. When I was fairly young. My wife and I travelled. Uh, Twenty three. Oh, that's very so, young. Yeah. Yeah, and we've got two boys now in the early 20s. Um, but I guess I really had a, a desire to build a nest egg. Like when we started thinking about having kids, I thought, hmm, okay, I'm on a limited income. How am I going to build a nest egg and support my wife at the same time? So I started going to seminars, going to meet with financial planners and really trying to get educated. You know, I wanted to get as educated as possible. And I think for anyone listening, that's the, one of the best things you can do is read books on financial wisdom, read books on economics, read books on property. I used to catch the train into the city and I'd read a book a week, you know. I, was, I would just digest information and absorb it, write notes, highlight things. I'd just write a lot of stuff down. So I guess that's – I've always had a natural love of learning and, and that sort of thing and then I'd apply it. Um, and when I was working at the EPA, um, I went to a lot of property courses at the time and bought my first investment property. We bought our own home and, um, you know, we had some a bit of debt on the home to pay off and I thought there's got to be a way to – a smart way to get ahead – so started investing out in how to buy properties, ended up going to a financial planner that sold me one of those off-the-plan properties that wasn't a great buy, but at least we got me into the market. You know, we were freaking out about getting more debt. And then I understood the concept of good debt versus bad debt. You know, bad debt's buying a boat or a, you know, plasma TV. 
good debts buying a good quality property in a great location. Well, and well, to, to simplify it further, bad debt is borrowing money to buy something that is not going to help, is not going to pay that money back. It's Absolutely. not going to provide yeah, your return. A, That's more than the amount you Exactly. Borrowed. So the capital value goes down and it's not providing you with an ongoing it's return, a, a it, yield. It, it, yeah. In opposite, a good, good debt is, buy, is borrowing money that, is going to buy you an asset of which is going to make a return of which exactly. is greater than that. Exactly. Money. Yeah. So I, I started to um, then learn and then I started to buy more properties. And as I started to buy, you know, two or three properties, I started to reduce my taxable income and ended up paying no tax. And people at my work said, you know, I remember the, the lady at the, um, what do you call it, in the uh, employment department, she saw my, you know, my group certificate and saw that I had very, very little tax. She goes, Rich, how do you do that? And I said, let me teach you. And then I started to realise, wow, there's a real niche in the market to teach people how to invest in property, minimise their tax and get and build a nest egg for themselves. And the tax minimisation was through? Well, just simply your tax Cap- deductions through, through negative gearing, through tax negative deductions gearing. and just buying the right kind of assets as well. And this really, I mean, because you were, you, I don't know if you were first, but I'm going to assume you were first because your business has been going for how long now? 21 years this year. That's, so. <laughs> I mean, and, and because if you think about it, buyers advocates only became like oh. more common and popular as of recent. That's right. Well, look, I mean, I was, was one of the first, probably one of the first four or five buyers agents in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, I joined the Real Estate Buyers Agent Association as soon as I started, one of the founding members of that. <laughs> you were the third and, person yeah, to join. <laughs> that's right. And I, I served as the president for four years, a couple of years ago, did a term there. Um, but yeah, that wasn't really a thing. I mean, people, you'd say, what do you do? I'm a buyer's agent. What? What, what do you mean? What do they do? So really probably 10 years ago, it started to become a lot more popular and more, more well-known. So it's been a journey in consumer education, actually getting out there what the role of a buyer's agent is. And look, there's plenty of scope. I think if you were to look at how many people use a buyer's agent these days, we don't know. I would say it's probably less than 5% of the population. I agree. You know, But I think we should be getting to that stage where, like in the US or in the UK, where probably 50% of the population should be using a buyer's agent simply because they can get a better result and get a better decision. And so you, um, you kind of accidentally – fell into the buyer's advocacy. You didn't do, for example, what, like, uh, as you know, I know Simon Cohen. Uh, I know Simon went to the US and saw it happening there and therefore uh, came here. Mind you, he did that after you, you were already already going. Did, did you see it overseas or did you actually stumble on it as a, oh, this is actually, a, I'm, uh, there's a need and I'm fulfilling that, uh, the, it was, or it there's was, a want and I'm, whatever it is? Yeah, it was more of a, I saw the need. I did know of the, I did know of the concept overseas and I actually travelled to the US to observe how they did it over there as well and realised that they weren't doing it very well and we can do it a lot better. Um, yeah, so it was very early in my career. I actually had a, another colleague that I started my business with and then quickly changed the name and did my own thing. Um, but it was, yeah, it was very much a, a, a need in the, or a ga- huge gap in the market. I mean, there was so many what I call property spruikers out there and that really got up my goat. One of the other motivations for starting my business was my brother, you know, before I started my business, bought a property up on the Gold Coast and, you know, they'd fly him up on the weekend and say, you look, you know, unless you buy, look, three other people are going to be looking at this property. Unless you really sign the contract today, it'll be gone on Monday forced them to buy this overpriced property and the guy was probably wearing white leather shoes and driving a Mercedes and gold chain around his neck, but, you know, the image, right? And it just really got up my goat and they don't disclose commissions. They're not, not forthright about how they actually sell and there's no transparency in the process. And that really annoyed me. And I just thought the poor buyer, the buyer's been forgotten in this conversation, in the whole transaction. The buyer needs to be empowered with information, empowered with a top negotiator on their side and just given the rights to be actually able to come to the table and have a fair fight. 
Um, and that's really what was part of the motivation for me starting a buyer's agency. And you actually mentioned something quite interesting I want to touch on that you, and a lot of people I speak to have the same thing. Whereas when they first start a business, they start with a partner and that doesn't last very long, you know, and it's quite an interesting concept because it's kind of like, okay, I mean, starting business is scary. Okay. I'm going to do it with someone else just because, you know, that makes it a little bit less scary. And then you quickly realize, oh, wait a second. It's not that scary. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't working out. See you later and move forwards. Maybe it's best for people to just start on their own and, and, and go or, Maybe that whole, I guess, short-term business partner phenomena is is good because it it at least allows people to start the business, which I think is the most important. Well, I think a lot of people aren't don't have a confidence to start the business, you know, because it often requires a lot of capital or a lot of knowledge or you know a, a real. Everyone has a great passion to start a business, right? There's a lot of enthusiasm, but to actually execute that takes a lot of skill, and a lot of people just don't have the wherewithal to put all that together. So I didn't really fill you in on part of my story, and that is I came, I started my business off the back of a huge investment loss. You know, at the time I started my business, we probably had a portfolio of around 14 properties, um, but I'd invested mistakenly, and this is don't ever do this, put 80% of your net worth with one developer. Um, and that's what I'd done. And this stupid developer ended up doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, he put money in the wrong places, didn't finish any of his project, cut a long story short. I screwed lo- you. Totally screwed me. Basically, yeah. lost almost. I almost lost everything except for you know one property, two properties out of it. So from that, I was really rising from the ashes and went. This is another motivation to start my business to really help people be careful how they spend their money and who they invest with, who they trust. So for me, um, out of that, I had a partner that I did trust. We really helped me to to get on my feet. But he wanted to go a slightly different direction in the business. You know, I was I was just purely wanting to do buyer's agency. He wanted to get more into developments at the time. I didn't. So I just we, – look, we're still friends to this day and I'm still thankful for him introducing me to the concept and getting me into it. Yeah, because, I mean, the short-term business partner is, is a great entrance into yeah. the business world. Yeah. Um, and it, it, on the topic of how much someone should risk uh, in their portfolio, I was actually listening, which, I mean, the listeners might love. I was listening to Ray Dalio speak to uh, Tony Robbins. I was just on a podcast. If you type Ray Dalio and Tony Robbins, it comes up. And he says that uh, no investor, the maximum risk you should ever take on your on, on a portfolio or on your wealth, the maximum risk that he would say anyway is 25%. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, everyone's got different measures. I mean, some people say 10%, 20%. But look, at the end of the day, everyone's got different risk-reward paradigms. And I think – it's, you know, and this is a big shout out to financial planners and advisors. If you get the right advisor, pay them well and listen to their advice. You know, I didn't surround myself with enough advisors to protect me. And I think in the in the buying space, in the investing space, you know, I don't know enough about shares to be really confident to go, I'm going to pick that share, that share. That's why I use a financial planner myself. Uh, do and you have a good one? Because someone actually asked me for a recommendation. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to Maybe recommend Maybe connect me after. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. Happy to. And that's what Cub's all about, sharing those referrals, you know. 100%. You know? Um, and, and, and not looking to get anything out of it. It's just simply building the network. But really one point is around getting an advisory team, in particularly in building your business. You know, when I started my business, I was pretty quick to get a business coach and I've been through probably four or five business coaches over my my lifetime. You wore them all out. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'd get to a point where I couldn't really learn anything new from that coach Mm -hmm. and it was like, you know, they were great. They'd certainly keep you accountable. They keep you on track um, and they can sort of open up certain networks. But there was a point at which I just wasn't getting any sort of further growth. So it was time to move on and, and have some fresh eyes. Um, and that's what I've loved with Cub. You know, you're never lonely here. It's it's lonely at the top, but you're never lonely because you're sharing. It's through peer 
peer-to-peer networking that you're really helping to grapple with those big issues in life. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's just it, – it is – being in business is – I mean, so few people dare to start a business, so few people – of those people mm. – build a successful one and, and having the ability to come together is, is the most important thing you can do. But tell me, you were how, – how so I assume you, you were a young man and you basically lost what was a, a fantastic uh, uh, fortune that you, that you had uh, very smartly and shrewdly built. What was that feeling of losing everything? Oh, super depressing, Daniel. It was very depressing. It was debilitating. It was like, why go on? Why bother? This is just shock and I'm just – what have I done? I'm such an idiot. You know, but we all make mistakes and we can recover. But I think for me, I said to my wife, this was a financial loss. It wasn't cancer. It wasn't a heart attack. It wasn't a major car crash and lost both my legs. You know, I've got so many other things I can be thankful for and I can rebuild. I've got time to rebuild. You know, and even if you make an investment loss in your 50s, you've still got time to rebuild. You know, you've got to be grateful. It's a bit the glass half full. Well, for my case, it was the glass one-eighth full um, and then rebuild from there. And I think you've just got to be – you know, for me, I had to dig really deep. I had to look at inside and go, what's going to get me through? And I got some great support around me to help me through. And, yeah, how long did that take? Like how, how long were you depressed for, I guess? Oh, probably six months or something. Yeah. yeah. But see, when, when, without, if I hadn't asked that question, it could have sounded like, oh, you bounced back really quick. But mm. six months is, is, a, is a, a good amount of time. It's good people hear that because sometimes you, ha- you do have loss. You might lose your business. You might lose – doesn't you, I mean, that was a big loss. But some people just lose their business or lose something else. And and um, it's important to know that, yeah, you, you're probably going to be pretty upset about it for a while. I'll tell you something else. A lot of people um, learn – you actually learn more from your losses than you do from your wins. Completely agree. And same in economics. It's been proven that people value their losses more than their gains. You know, if, if you remember losing something in your life, you'll, you'll remember that much more than perhaps the, the high points of your life. And I think, you know, even in my team today, we share our wins, losses and challenges. And I say to my team, don't be so proud that you can't share something that didn't go the way you wanted it to because we can all learn from that. And I think that's, again, that's what Cub's about. It's about sharing those experiences and what to do and what not to do. Yeah, the, the, it, it depends how you look at it. It can either be a loss or it can be a gain in that it's an opportunity to have grown. Exactly. You know, it's a lesson. The, 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 uh, the fashion industry knows that very well. That's why they get you to try on uh, clothes. Uh, when you get in there, oh, look, I'm just looking at it. No, look, try it on. Just just slip it on. It feels beautiful. You put it on and automatically it's so much harder not to buy because by taking it off, you'd be losing. It's the puppy dog clothes, losing. right? Take, yeah. the, take the thing, take the item clothing home, take the puppy dog home and you've got to buy it, right? Yeah, so clever. Um, but um, and and so, are you in business? Um, or tell me about your business now. How, kind of, what's its scale? What have you built? And how long did it take? Oh yeah, well, look, started off just my wife and I um, built the logo, built the sort of basic business plan and the logo over the kitchen table. And you know, we were pretty small for the first twelve months. And um, today, we've got twenty five staff. Uh, we're in Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Newcastle, Sunshine Coast. And um, we target. We start off just doing home buyers and investors, and um, now we've got really six divisions. We do home buying, property investing, uh, property management, prestige property, commercial buying, and development site acquisitions. So pretty much any kind of property that anyone wants to buy, whether you're an institutional investor, a mum and dad investor, or a CEO, we can help you. You know, we can help people from first home buyers through to buying their twentieth property. Uh, it doesn't matter. And do you have like people who specialize in different areas, for yes. example? Because I'd imagine that'd be quite important. Absolutely. So we have geographic specialists on the ground that know their patch. They're monitoring the market day in, day out, just like you talk about the eastern suburbs. 
And uh, actually one of our clients just sold their property uh, this week for $12 million mm-hmm. um, in a very tightly held market. So, yeah, we know those markets really well. It's really important the buyer's agents are on the ground, going to open houses, going to auctions and understanding what's happening at that granular level. And just for people who – because I know people who swear by buyer's agents, they, 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 they love them. And I know some people who haven't tried them, they haven't tried and used it yet, but they'll say, oh, you know, why, why, why spend the money? Mm-hmm. Can you explain how the – uh, it, what it costs a buyer's agent, how that commission works and and what what people are actually receiving by doing that. What's the benefit of doing that? Yeah, great question. So I think, I think that one of the key benefits is around the value proposition, actually understanding the brief. Like a lot of people don't have clarity about what they need or want. So we do a deep dive into their personal situation and we'll say, look, what's going to be the best home to suit your needs, your journey to work, your family connections, your recreational activities, and get an idea on the, on, the, on the brief. Second, we then give them a lot of background research, all the suburb profiles, and we give them a benchmark report for what their money will buy. So a lot of people don't know the market as well as they should know the market. Another big value proposition is off-market properties. We're real specialists in that. We've got an incredibly deep network of agents right across the country and at a local level to get access to properties that you never see advertised. doesn't mean that they're any better than on-market, but we are able to cast the net a lot wider. Another huge thing that it brings a lot of value to the client is around negotiating and working out what value to pay. I mean, anyone can try and negotiate, but you've got to start from the preposition of knowing what is this property actually worth in today's market. I mean, if you're buying a property in you know August 2021 when the market was going through the roof and then we had lockdown and there was no supply, you were paying probably a 10% premium. Come to today in 2022 and I can get that property, same property at a 10, 12, 15% discount. So knowing what to pay for a property and what to offer on a property is super important. And then being unemotional about negotiating, being able to save the client a lot of money through negotiation. We've saved hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars for our clients in negotiating. I have plenty of stories to share on that front. Um, and I think the other thing is just bringing the whole package together, knowing how to execute. A lot of people miss out on properties because they're too slow or too fast or don't know where how to pitch it or they'll cheese the agent off and not treat them correctly. Um, there's a lot of little soft nuances in the whole game that we're able to bring to the table. In terms of fees, um, we range between one5 to 2%, uh, depending on the price of the property, and we often do a fixed fee for our client because we don't want there any perception of bias. So they'll typically pay around a $5,000 engagement fee, which comes off the total, and then our agreement runs for six months, and the average turnaround time, Daniel, is around you know, one to three months on average or, or quicker. Which is pretty quick if you're searching for a home. Oh, most people take 12 months or more yeah. on their own, just like you're talking about. You yeah, can't I'm always find, looking. Can't I literally find, look every find, day can't for find. fun. Yeah, and, and most people are just – Honestly, they either miss the market. Um, the other challenge for people right now in the market, Daniel, is they're going to be actually priced out of the market, not because the prices are going down, it's because their borrowing capacity is going, going, going faster than what the prices are going down. So for every 1% increase in interest rates, you're going to lose at least 10% borrowing capacity. But if you look at the curve, it actually means your borrowing capacity is going to go down quicker than what the prices are. And and so really that 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 that's going to impact uh, property prices totally. more heavily than yeah. than. Um, but you'll get to a point where it stabilises. So the interest rates will go up, as we said. If the cash rate tops out at two and a half or three percent, add to the two percent margin for the banks, you'll see the mortgage rates around four and a half to five percent, which is where they were a couple of years ago. Okay. And so what? So let's get back to your opinion on the market. And um, what do you think is going to be happening over the next twelve months? Yeah, great question. And let's ch- yeah. just make it more specific. Let's 
base it on Sydney. Okay. If you want to speak about Melbourne as well, because we'll probably have a lot of li- – sure. We should probably check what percent of listeners are from Melbourne. But And Brisbane as well, yeah. Yeah. So if you're just talking the Sydney market, yeah, we're definitely in the middle of a correction phase. Um, as I said, I think the prices have already come off 10 to 15%. I think we'll probably see a maximum of 15 to maximum 20% drop. Mm-hmm. Um if we if interest rates go above cash rate goes above three percent, you will hit the twenty. Oh, but I don't think you'll get anything less. But that's just getting back to a probably about ten percent above COVID levels. So during COVID, property prices rose around thirty percent. On the northern beaches, they went up thirty eight percent. It's just crazy. You know, I've never seen a market in my whole career go so fast. Wait, so, so northern beaches during COVID yeah, went up almost forty percent. Correct over the over the two year period, up forty percent. Oh my lord! Yeah, absolutely. Phenomenal. Yeah. That is phenomenal. That's right. something you, you – have you ever seen that happen never. before? Like I said, never in my career. I've been in this game almost 25 years and never seen that before. It's just well, phenomenal. The people that sold, oh, I guess. happy days. Happy days. Yeah, if you picked it right, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to do what my friends did and they sold just before COVID hit for $2 million and then yeah. the house sold in their street for $4 million about two years later. Yeah, my so. sister did that actually. <laughs> So it sold right before COVID and uh, then bang, uh, the yeah. skyrocket. So I think you'll see the market will find a new plateau or new floor basically either sort of December or early next year once interest rates have really topped out. That's when we, people will go, oh, actually the market's okay, the sky's not falling, you know, now's the time to buy. But as I said, I think personally the time to buy is when there's a lot of negative sentiment, which is now the next three months, so during this last bit of winter, early spring season. So if we look at Sydney, yeah, we'll, we'll find a new floor. It'll kick along. And then we'll probably just see a more stabilised market. And then it just depends in terms of the market getting back to recovery, like actually hitting the bottom of the curve and getting back to where we were at the previous boom. It could take, you know, it could take two, three years. Um, but that's going to depend on a few things. It's going to depend on interest rates. It's going to depend on our economic growth and, and business confidence, consumer confidence. Um, and it's also going to depend on the number of migrants coming into this country. So the demand for property is purely determined by how many people need a home over their heads. And uh, and right now being a, a good time to buy, it's just so I understand it correctly, it's because there's a negative sentiment. So people are like, mm, I don't really want to buy right now. And also your borrowing power still hasn't been diminished correct. because the interest rates haven't gone all the way up That's yet. right, correct. So if you find – if you, you can get lucky, find a great property, they didn't have buyers, and yeah. you still have the borrowing power, bang. Because if the prices go down, it's not like, oh, great, I'm buying at a 20% discount because unless you've you're cashed, you've yeah. got the cash yeah. – you're not buying – you can't buy it. It's, you just well, can't afford it. Hence, prop- that's why the price came down. Daniel, yeah. property's a long game. Like I said, I've just bought two properties myself. I've just bought one on the Central Coast and I bought one in Brisbane. You know, the one in Brisbane I bought probably two and a half months ago. I've got a three-month settlement. Now, I probably could have paid 5% less if I'd bought it today, literally today. But it doesn't worry me that I've paid a little bit more because I'm doing two townhouses in the backyard. I'm adding value to the – doing a reno on the house. I'm, and I'm going to be holding it for the next 50 years. So it doesn't worry me. You know, and I think homeowners and – both investors should have the same attitude. It's about your ability to get into the market that's the most important thing. Trying to time your entry perfectly into the market. It's a bit like one of those Olympic divers trying to do a triple pike reverse somersault and get no splash, right? It's very, very hard to do. And most people won't pick the exact month. And no one rings a bell to say, hey, Daniel, you know, on the 21st of September, that's the bottom of the market. You know, you're going to know historically when it was, but you can just read the signs now as to when it's going to be. And, and again, now is a good time because your borrowing capacity is better than it's going to be. Not that if the interest rates keep going up, which they obviously will, 
um, it, it, it doesn't mean it's a bad time to buy. It just means your borrowing capacity is also lower. So your you 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 whatever your your the price you can pay is lower. Borrowing capacity, as I said, it's one of the most important things that people don't realize they've got. So when you apply to the bank to get your loan, you've typically got ninety days to buy. Having your income assessed, and it's going to be reassessed all the time. Every time it's reassessed at a higher interest rate, your capacity goes down. And, and, and there'll come a point when you just realise, oh, gosh, I can't buy into X suburb because I just can't afford it. And, you know, you lock that loan away for 30 years, bank doesn't review it for 30 years, great. You know, you've got it locked and loaded. And tell me about serviceability because that's a big topic at the moment. The banks, it's getting harder for people to actually get the money. I mean, that happened already a couple of years ago. It's getting worse and worse and worse, getting yeah. even harder. Mm-hmm. What, what does service, serviceability actually mean? And how does, like, for example, like, like yourself, you obviously own a lot of, a lot of properties. How are the banks looking at, we won't use you as an exact example, but you know, how are the banks looking at you and saying, okay, well, yeah, you can service that. We are going to keep yeah. giving you money. So they look at, firstly, they look at your income and you typically be able to borrow about six times your income as a rough rule of thumb. Um, I recommend going to a broker because um, they can assess your borrowing capacity across a range of different lenders and they've all got different policies. So the higher your income, generally the better your borrowing capacity will be. Secondly, they look at your assets and what your loan-to-value loan to ratio is, so how much equity you've got to contribute because that's a real safety buffer. Thirdly, the banks have a 3% margin, like a buffer. So APRA have been instructed all the banks to have a, uh, a buffer. So if you know the, the mortgage rate is, say, 4%, then they'll add another 3% on top of that and assess it at 7%. So typically when you're borrowing, there's already safety nets built in place anyway, and the banks won't offer you more than 80% loan-to-value ratio unless you pay lender's mortgage insurance. And the only time you'd want to do that if you're buying investment properties and you've got the ability to, to go a bit higher. And so when people say in recent years the bank's uh, – the serviceability has become uh, – it's become more difficult to borrow money, what has happened? What's caused that? Well, it's it's to do with um, what's caused it. I mean, yeah, is that that whole uh, – you know, when they when they did that crackdown on the banks? Yeah. The, is that what happened? Was yeah, that so the ap- result ap- of that? Exactly. APRA brought in a lot of regulations. Remember sort of I think it was 2017, 2018. Those years were quite, quite difficult for us because that really crimped – crimped lending to investors particularly. Um, so we saw a real drop-off in demand. But again, APRA and the banks have got to be careful. If they crimp lending too much to the property market, the property market and the property industry is a huge powerhouse for Australia. You know, there's over $9 trillion worth of real estate in the country, and I think it's 2 or $3 trillion in, in the share market. So the property market is a huge, huge impetus, and we don't want to see that that train slowing too much. So there's a balance between having really, really tight lending criteria and having too loose criteria. I mean, our Australian mortgages, we have one of the most robust systems in the world. You know, in America, they have non-recourse loans. You can just hand the keys back if you can't pay yeah, it off. Yeah, people walk out of their house. Yeah, and it's it's, it's completely different. Things. We have a very, very strong strong mortgage system here in Australia. Uh, meaning that basically people don't default on their Exactly. Mortgages. Very low delinquency rates. Very, very low. It's like 0.5%, whatever the number is. Very, very low. And But before that happened – the banks were a lot more lenient with lending money? They used to give low-doc loans or, or no-doc loans. So you could just basically – many, many years ago, I remember going into a, a broker once and they and they said, what do you earn? I said, X. Here, sign this bit of paper. There's your loan. You're approved. Five minutes. I went, what? That'd be awesome. Me? It was unreal. It was amazing. <laughs> but today, no, you don't get that today. But so. does it fluctuate? Like, Okay, maybe not today, but do- – does it, you know, do these things fluctuate like yeah, the economy? We, like, we, oh, it gets looser, it yeah, gets tighter, tighter, and then it's going to get looser. Yeah, you, know? you will see lending criteria change over time. I mean, but I don't think you'll see it unwound a lot. I, even even if the market 
really, really tanks, I don't think you're going to see lending criteria because the banks don't want to see uh, – uh, sorry, APRA doesn't want to see a, a really loose financial system with, with personal lending to consumers. And being a business owner, you're in a very different predicament with borrowing money and buying property, aren't you? Mm. Um, because, you, you know, it's just not – it's not just here's your wage and – and off you go. You've got this business that they're going to look into and they're going to assess. And you might have shown, you know, you might have your finances one way for one reason, but then, you know, this is a new reason. Yeah. How do you, do you have any, um, um, do you have any, um, I don't know how I've forgotten this word, tips, I guess, yeah. um, on uh, as a business owner, how you yeah. could be looking at property or how you could be incorporating property into your, uh, into your plan? Yeah, property, if you're a business owner, you should be obviously earning as much profit as you can out of your business and channel that profit into an asset-making venture, which is either shares or property or both. For me, it's property. I love property because it's just what I do. I live and breathe. Um, I would suggest getting a really good accountant, um, keep your numbers always up to date, and every year do a review of where your financial position. I'd probably do it every six months if you can. So again, get a good financial planner, good accountant, and, and look at your borrowing capacity. Um, and the trick, the hardest thing is with a business owner is, you know, some years are good, some years are not so good. And it, depending on what sort of business you're in, um, but the banks will, will only lend to you um, typically on two years worth of tax returns. Now, there are some banks that will do one year. Um, CBA up until I think last year, we'd, we're happy to look at one year's financials. But again, if you can get good track record with a lender and, and show you your financial capacity, great. And they might have to unpack or un, un what's the word for, investigate um, forensically a few things in your accounts and they go, well, why is that there? And it's like, well, I'm, I'm claiming higher depreciation because I bought a car or I bought this asset or, or this machine or whatever it is. So make sure you explain all of that to the lender. And that's why I reckon you know, going to a, a broker who really understands business owners, particularly small business, um, is a really smart strategy. And you guys have a good brokerage partner Absolutely. or you guys have it in-house? No, we use we a great partner. Absolutely. With yeah. several partners. And it's interesting to know that because um, the, the two year when, when the banks look at your two years of performance. So like if you made two mil this year and one mil last year, they 1.5, we're, we're doing your, your lending correct. off that. That's kind they of how average it, it Correct. That's right. They average it over the last two or three years tax returns. Yeah. It is interesting what you said before regarding um, panic because it is, it's easier said than done. Like, for example, I'll use myself for example. Uh, I bought – I don't know, maybe last year, uh, a terrace in Victoria Street, just in Potts Point. I had just sold one in Potts Point, like the one two doors up, yep. and then I just bought the one two doors down. And this is happening now, and you're hearing all the, oh, the property market's going to crash. Is the economy going to crash? I personally believe there's got to be some sort of recession. America's already, whether they say they're in it or not, you know, they're already in it. And we tend to follow, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm at least planning for that. I'm, I'm planning my finance for that. Anyway, the thought crossed my mind. Maybe I should sell the terrace. And I really, I even called the agent. I spoke to him. And only reason being was it's probably a good time to sell now. I'm looking to buy a house in the future anyway. You know, I can use the money for the the, the house or the extra borrowings for the house. And I get out and I'll buy the house when the market's even lower. So like, I didn't do it because I actually consulted some very smart property people and I'm lucky to be surrounded by a lot of smart people. So, and I ended up not, you know, if I won't do that. Good decision. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> it's long term. And I, I just think that, but, but I understand where you're coming from. A lot of people would be, would, would panic. Well, and what they're not taking into account, the reason people panic is they look at the value of their asset going down thinking, gosh, but think at the flip side, look at the rent that you're going to receive by holding that property. Now rents have gone up 10%. 
Some areas they've gone up 15. I think this calendar year they could end up going a total of 20% in one year. Now, I pity the poor tenant that's renting a property. It must be so difficult to cope with massive rent increases, but that's the reality. Again, we don't have enough supply in the whole market to satisfy demand. So coming back to your point about you know people panicking and selling out, you've got to look at the total rent, rent return you're going to get from the property in the next one, two, three to five years and factor that into your cash flow equation instead of just freaking out. Because if you sell, you've got to pay agent's fees on the way out. And then to buy him back in, you're paying stamp duty and more fees stamp again. Stamp duty is a joke. And it's a joke. Yeah, absolutely. For every million dollars, 42 grand goes down the drain. You know, on a, on a $2 million, it's 95 grand. Like it's just money for jam, right? Until they bring in stamp duty reform, which I really hope the New South Wales government does, you know, but that'll, again, there's going to be an annual land tax. But what I'm saying is- Can you explain that though? Because that was something, that was one of my notes I wanted to bring up with you. Sure. Because that is also a question that's been, that you know, a thing that's causing a bit of uncertainty, the the reform. Well, the tax, okay. So the idea is to reform stamp duty. So like in the ACT, they've not so much abolished stamp duty, they've reframed it. So what it will be, it'll be a choice between paying it all up front or or an annualised land tax. So what happens is instead of paying your 40 grand up front on a million dollar property, you might pay two or three or whatever the number is, four grand a year for the next infinitum forever. The trick is though, the government's pretty smart. What they've said is once the property, once you've elected to choose an annual payment, that property stays in the system forever, right? So- I've looked at sort of the, what I call the break-even point, and you can say, okay, at what point are you better off paying it upfront, or are you better off paying it as an annual land tax? I think for investors, you're better off paying it as an annual land tax. If you're a home buyer and you're going to stay in the property for more than say twelve to fourteen years, I reckon it's about thirteen or fourteen years. That's when you break even. Okay, so really, they're not getting rid of it; they're just it's letting re- you pay. It's it. reframing. You're paying it over, yeah, yeah. on an annual basis. That's sneaky right. bugs. The government will never get rid of it, mate. They're addicted to like crack cocaine. But that's not the know? yeah. So. They, well, they are, but that's not the way it is overseas, is it? I thought overseas it's it's different. Is that correct? Depends which country you're talking about. You know, I so. don't know. Someone was telling me that's not how it is. I'm going to assume it's America because it's what yeah. normally people base it on. Do you know what it is in I, America? I don't or, know what it is in America, or New so. Zealand. Or in New Zealand, there's there's very there's it's much more favourable. There's there's no there's limited capital gains tax and very little stamp duty. It's much more favourable. So New Zealand has a lot better property. Uh, yeah, better property uh, taxes. taxes. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder why we're different to them. We're so close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. You um, started the business with your wife. What was her name? Roz. With Roz. And is Roz still involved in the business? Um, and, and what's that like uh, operating yeah, a- really good uh, question, actually. So Roz was with me sort of in the business for the first sort of eight years. Uh, really great on heading, setting up systems and good with the marketing ideas and great with PR. Uh, she had a PR background. So really learning how to promote the business from a low-cost budget. Because like when you're a small business owner- you haven't got, you know, $5,000 a month to spend on Google AdWords, right? So you've got to work out, okay, how can I network and get my message out to this audience as quickly as possible? So she was really helpful in that regard. Um, But then we found there were two cooks in the kitchen and it was getting a bit tricky and we're sort of talking about, have you sent that invoice to that person? Have you done this as we're lying in bed? It's like, it's not a healthy marriage. So I couldn't sack her, so she sacked herself. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was actually the best thing because then we realised we had to do a bit of a reset because I, I think working with your, your love partner, your life partner long term, to be honest, it's not a healthy thing. I think you really, if you're in business with your partner, 
work on a succession plan for one of you to get out of it and do something fresh. Then you can come home to each other, talk about your day and different stuff, you know. Um, so that was really – and it wasn't her passion. Her passion is not for profit. She works in for an aid organisation as a major fundraiser now. So that's her passion and it's so great to see you doing so well in that area. And I agree with that because otherwise – I mean, different people work differently, but, but uh, I agree because it would get kind of – I would imagine it gets kind of like I can never distress because even when I'm lying yeah. in bed, I have to talk about. Well, you're always thinking about. I mean, as a business owner, right? You're always thinking about your business, aren't you? You're always talking about it because it's your baby, it's your passion, right? And so it's it's really important you can work out ways to de-stress. And I think you know, the, I, I do a lot of things to de-stress, Daniel. I, I go to the gym three times a week. Um, I'm not a very good surfer, but I've got a little mini mouth and go for a surf down. Well, curl curl occasionally. Are you in the northern beaches? Oh, northern beaches, yeah, yeah. Play golf, uh, go water skiing with my boys, you know. So I do a lot of things to just take my mind off the business, and that really helps you refocus. So I encourage everyone get a daily routine where you're doing something for yourself every day that helps energize you. Um, I mean, this morning I was up at 6 30, I was in the gym at 7, did a cycle class. 25Ks in 40 minutes, you know, just went hammer and tong. feel great, you know. Um, and it just I didn't have much energy when I woke up, but after the class I have energy, you know, it's great. I agree. Yeah. I, I need to do – I, I, I just started going back to the gym. I, I do boxing and yeah. wrestling awesome. and kickboxing, anything that get, I get to hit shit. Right. And um, <laughs> and I hadn't trained since my holiday. Yeah. Um, and I was feeling – I was just you – know, yeah. I was just feeling like shitty. I was just, I didn't have the energy. My body felt crap. I only started last week, so this is my second week. I already feel like a champion. I think Good I'm in the, I'm going to enter the Olympics. Good on you, mate. you know you get the that feeling. Great, like, isn't yeah. it? Boxing, you really punch it. You take it out on the bag. And, oh, you know, it's the best thing anyone Especially can ever Especially combos. Do. You get the combos right. Oh yeah, great. then you feel cool yeah, too. Yeah. On the pad, you, you feel like you look cool. Love it. Oh um, yeah, it, it's a it's a. But any 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 distraction yeah. or or way to get that energy out of your body because yeah. you build up like. And particularly as a business owner, I was in um, um, a, a Tubbs doing like this education program at the moment. We've partnered with Boston Global, Honduras Consulting and, and Harvard Managemental, which is like their online curriculum. And um, we're, we're doing like this leadership development program, uh, just uh, a few groups of members in Sydney and Melbourne, and I'm in one of the groups. And we were talking about um, uh, leadership and how as a leader you need to not – react emotionally, you need to be consistent and stable for your team. Um, and you do almost, you, you need to be authentic, but you do also need to bury the emotions uh, often. You can't respond with, with emotion and you can't show your team, I guess, discomfort or, yeah. or, you know, or be crazy for them. And that, and it made me start thinking, I was like, this is probably why I like, uh, I like um, kicking and punching things because because you bury it deep and and you don't show it, and but it's there, yeah. and you have to let You've it out. Let it like out. You need It'll to let come it. out inappropriately yeah. if you don't let it out. Yes, right? it'll come out with pimples on your face or some other way, right? You've got to get it out of your system. And but as you say, it's a great way to de-stress. Yeah. You've got and, to do it. Yeah, you don't have to kick something, but you might yeah. you surf yeah. or yeah. or anything. Like exactly. you just, it's energy. Like Absolutely. it's sitting there, and yeah. it just needs to whoop. Yeah. Get get it out. Get the fuck out, and yeah. that way it does. You don't end up swearing at someone and exactly. losing your mind. Totally. And how. I was going to just ask you on the topic of leadership. What, have you made any mistakes in leadership um, in your, I mean, long career now? 21 years having a, a business is, is a serious. They, they say five years you become a real business. Ten years you've made it now. You know you're not going anywhere. 21 years, I don't even know what they say about that because so few people get there. <laughs> yeah, I think, look, um, to the answer, similar answer, yes, I've made some, some bad mistakes. You know, one is – 
uh, I can be too trusting of some people and get taken advantage of. And I've learned to really have a discerning radar. I mean, that's one thing that my wife's got in spades over me, and I think women generally have women much, have that much, much better. better intuition, right? Yeah. So hats off. My to mum, them. my mum's you know? like that for my dad. I remember this great cartoon: is this guy standing at these two roads, and it's the crossroads of life for men. Listen to wife, or go your own way. You know? So, <laughs> um, nothing further said. But, but I think for me, I've made some bad hires, made some bad decisions, and I think do with your reference checks, hire slowly, fire quickly. Um, and if people aren't performing, have a very open conversation very early in the piece about why they are disengaged, why they're not performing. Um, but pick the best people you can to get on your team. You know, you look at the sports teams, right? If you want the stars, go for the stars, right? I mean, you don't want someone who's going to be such a rock star that they rock the whole boat of the company and have so much ego they just you know, put everyone offside. But I've got a fantastic – I'm so happy with the team I have now. It is just unbelievable, great people. I mean, some of them have been with me 15 years. You know, I've time. got, I've got, if you Half look at the average, life. average tenure of, of people in my company, some of them have stayed eight, 10, 12 years. It's amazing, you know, but I think that's testament to how we get on, how we do things as a business. Um, but for me as the leader, um, it's about, for me, training my team. I mean, people say, if you're a business owner, oh, what if I train my team and they leave? Well, what if you don't train them and they stay, right? You've got a big problem. So for me, I believe investing in people is one of the best things you can do as a business owner and investing in yourself. Like I'm um, just like you've done this leaders program. I'm doing a New South Wales leaders program at the moment, and as soon as I learn something, I bring it back to my team. I share it with my team. We um, we at least once a month, if not every fortnight, we have a, a share and learn session uh, with our team. You know what's happening in your area patch? What can we learn from each other? I get an external trainer to come in and train my team, and it's amazing. Just um, we did one during COVID. We talked about emotional intelligence and emotional fitness because a lot of people in COVID were feeling really down, depressed, trapped, all that sort of thing. So I got this guy to come in and, and he just basically said, look, how are you going with this and what can we do? What strategies can we do to be emotionally fit and self-aware? Um, this year I've got another, another lady coming in and we're doing training um, around communication skills and around understanding others and understanding our clients. So you're regularly having the team upskilled. Absolutely, basically. 100%. And, and see, but now you have a great team and I can relate to that because now I have a great team. But it takes time for a business owner to build a great team. And, and it's all well and good to just say, okay, yeah, your team is the most important thing. You've got to have a great team. But it, you, it takes so long to do. And people need to remember that. And, and, and also if you're starting business or in, you're, even if you're in the first five years of business, like it takes ages to build a great team because not only do you need to find the people, but you need to then – build a relationship, which takes time. It takes years to really trust each other and you, you're there. And, and in addition to that, you need to know your business better so you know who's better suited to your culture and to that specific role you need. To, you, right. know, you you get better, which helps in in, in finding the right people, but it takes time. Well, like, if, if you get better, you attract better people. Yeah. And I found that too. You know, I've got Munro who's a member of CARB and, and leading our Eastern Suburbs team. He's fantastic, full of energy. Love Munro. Super high integrity. You know, just great attention to detail. You should see the reviews he gets. They're just amazing. Maybe just I should get him to help me find a house. Well, you should, absolutely. He'd love to. I mean, second to none. His testimonials, five-star Google reviews all the time. Um, you know, Matt and my team, he's been on Northern Beaches for 15 years. Unbelievable negotiator, super solid, high integrity. You know, so having – and it's for me – But how long did that take for you to get to the point where you were like, okay, i got a pretty great team now? Yeah, probably 10 years. Yeah, see, yeah. it takes I mean, it, time. But, it don't, but they're saying for the, for the people listening, don't shortcut recruitment. Don't shortcut recruitment. It's, it's a process. Don't expect to build an amazing team in 30 days. 
you know, you might be lucky and get a couple, but you've got to realise there's going to be some attrition. You know, some people move away for family reasons. Some people divorce and unfortunately break up and things happen in their lives. And just on that too, when people are going through a hard time in your business, make sure you're there for them. Agree. And, and know that you're you're another family source of support for them. I think that's really important. If you if you just go, oh, yeah, you got your problems, you just be all right. You can't say that. You've actually got to text them, call them. How are you going? Are you okay? You need to take a day off. Like ask them those questions. So as a business owner and a leader, you've got to have high, very high emotional intelligence rather than just be focused on driving the car down Completely the road. agree. I mean, I know the world's now getting more towards there's home and there's work and you can't mix the two and that type of thing. But it, at Cub, we always say, well, I always say, I say, there's just life. It's not home life and work life. It's yes. just life. Yes. And work makes up the work part of your life allows you to do all the other beautiful things in life. And because it's life, as a team, we're a, we're a life team. It's not we're just helping each other with work problems. We're helping each other with life problems. And if someone – everyone goes through bad things. No one ever gets through life unscathed. There's always – even at one time, there's it's, always at least three team members yeah. going through something personally that's, that's, that's bad. And you need to be there for them. Yeah. And I actually think that that is what builds a great team because you build um, – you, you, they trust you and you're doing the right thing and it, it builds that – connectivity between totally. teams and that's a long-term team. Like long-term, you're there for there for each other for, yeah. for, for any problem. You've got to just grow through the pain. I think pain, you've got to reframe it. Look at pain as a gift. Look at these hard times as a gift because if, if you just go, oh, woe is me, I've got a victim mentality, right? But if you can turn it on its head and go, what can I learn from this really hard time? What can I learn from this recession? What can I learn from this difficult experience I'm having with this client or with this employee or with this other business partner, what can I learn and what do I want to change? What does my, And you've got to have a, then a vision to get through that and come out the other side better. I love it. And we do have to wrap up. Laura's circling your fingers. But I actually wanted to ask you, uh, we normally finish, as I'm sure you know, with like a, a book, quote, lesson, whatever. I, I really like your quote. Could you, could, you, um, could you share that and maybe explain what it means and why it's your favourite? Yeah, great. Um, so people ask me, Rich, what's your philosophy in business? And I, I drill this. If you've asked any of my team, they'll say they'll be able to quote you this quote exactly. My quote is, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So for me, it's about authenticity and knowing that you genuinely care about your client because then trust, rapport, everything else flows from that. If you just treat your clients or your, your business um, associates as like numbers or things, or if you treat your wife or your partner like that, then they just there's no care, right? Care is the foundation of building relationships long term, and that's really important for me. And I think the other philosophy in, in life, I had to drill down in a one sentence what I'm about. It's just helping people make wise property decisions, and that's that's where it stems from. It's all about helping them out. I couldn't agree more. Uh, to our listeners, if you want to get in touch with Rich or find out more favorite books, greatest lessons, or go to the uh, website for Property Buyer, actually it's just propertybuyer.com.au, so a pretty good, easy website. Uh, but if you want to go to Cub's website first, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you'll find more information about Rich there and have the ability to reach out. I'm going to have to speak to you, Rich, about um, uh, maybe look at some property strategy um, and uh, I'm sure a, a lot of people uh, will also. Guys, if you want to catch up with Cub uh, on Instagram, it's at Club United Business. It's equally as awesome as our website. So go check it out. Thank you once again, Rich. That was a very, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got a bit overwhelmed with knowledge there. I had to make – I ran out of space. I was going to say, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking yeah. with you. Love to help you and love to yeah. connect with other club members and, and people outside too. So thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Legend. Thank you, Rich. Hope you enjoyed the show.